Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 32, The Ohm Campaign. Welcome back, folks. Today, we are going to begin our march to the end of 1805, in which Napoleon authored some of the greatest military campaigns of his career, and thus in history. These next four episodes are going to be longer than our average half hour or so we've done for the previous 31, but they are going to cover some of the most well-known events of Napoleon's military career, So buckle up and get cozy, because Napoleon and his Grand Armée are going to make their march to immortality. But first, let's back up slightly, recap a bit of last episode, and set the scene for this mammoth four-parter. Because we talked last week that after the disastrous defeat that Napoleon's navy suffered at the Battle of Cape Finisterre, that the situation had completely changed with his intentions on invading Britain. With the Third Coalition, remember at first comprising Britain, Sweden, Russia, and the Kingdom of Naples, now drawing Austria into the fold, Napoleon and the First French Empire were faced with the prospect of an imminent invasion as the Austrians began to enter into Bavaria. Napoleon, now abandoning his intentions on invading Britain, needed to decide on what his first action would be. Should he wait, he would be faced with the prospect of fighting a larger force on French soil in a defensive war. But, should he make the first move, he might be able to crush one enemy before the others had a chance to join him. And I think we all know which choice Napoleon Bonaparte decided to make. One thing that I think often gets overshadowed about Napoleon's military genius is his ability to use secrecy to hide his troop movements. Napoleon left nary a man in Boulogne, save for a few troops there to protect the ports from any British incursions. And he sent the rest of the Army of the Coast, again, now the Grand Armée, and began to move them closer and closer to the Rhine River in Germany. Napoleon, though, did not want his troop movements to be noticed by spies or enemy scouts, so many of the men marched during the night under the cover of darkness to avoid detection, and Napoleon basically ordered a complete press blackout of mentioning the troops back in Paris. He wanted to simulate the idea that he was blissfully unaware of what the Austrians were doing, allowing them to get overconfident before he was able to make his move. And it would be something that would define his military campaigns in the upcoming five years, but it was something which was about to become legendary over the next five months. Now, apart from hiding his troop movements in the press blackout, Napoleon also employed German-speaking spies to closely monitor the Austrian troop movements on their end and to file them into a specially made safety box to hide what they were doing in the case that they were found out. The name or number of each regiment was to be entered on a playing card, and the cards were to be changed from one compartment to another depending on the regimental movements. The head of the Austrian army, General Karl Mach von Liebrich, decided to make his first move when, on September 2, 1805, he crossed the Bavarian border and captured the city of Ulm. His plan 
was to seal off many of the gaps which ran through the mountainous Black Forest in southern Germany, which had witnessed much of the fighting during the French Revolutionary Wars. Mack, believing that this area would be central to the campaign again, decided against fighting in central Germany, and thus decided on making Ulm the center of his defensive strategy. Now, he knew that alone the Austrians would be unable to take on the French head-on, so he figured he could use the naturally impregnable city as a base until his Russian counterparts, led by General Mikhail Kutuzov, arrived later in the fall. With Ulm surrounded by the Mikkelsburg Heights, Mack believed the city to be virtually untakeable from an outside attack, and it would work well to withstand a prolonged siege. However, there were problems even before Mack had taken Ulm. Principally, the Aulic Council, essentially one of the supreme courts of the Holy Roman Empire, but it also held executive authority, decided on making northern Italy the main theater of the operations for the majority of the Austrian army, especially her elite troops under the command of Archduke Charles. Now, they believed that Napoleon would make this region her primary theater for a third time, and it was understandable, of course, but much like in the Raiders of the Lost Ark, well, they chose poorly. Because this left Mack already severely compromised in manpower, and with the Russians further away than initially thought, he was, albeit unknowingly, a sitting duck for the French. Now, there have been numerous explanations floated around as to why the Russians were so far behind. Poor intelligence, even worse logistical planning, which seems to be a trait of the Russian military, and an 11-day difference between the Russian Julian calendar and the Gregorian calendar the rest of Europe used. But whatever the reason, the Russians not being in contact with the Austrians at Ulm in September would prove to be a fatal error from which they would not recover. Now Napoleon, though at this point in history the master of Italy, had always envisioned another war against the Austrians being fought on German soil, principally on central German soil, so we can already see that he is just one step ahead of the Austrians in every which way. They think he's going left, well, technically south, but he goes right. And so when Napoleon got word of the Austrian movements in Italy, he sent Massena to lead the army of Italy, replacing Jordan, and told his stepson Eugène to ready the citizens for an Austrian invasion. From there, he raided some 210,000 men from the camps of Boulogne, and they moved towards Germany, hoping to envelop an isolated Austrian army down in Bavaria. Seven corps of the Grand Armée under the command of Marshals Bernadotte, Murat, Davout, Ney, Lens, Marmont, and Soult marched eastward at lightning speed, crossing the Rhine by September 25th. Napoleon had hoped to do this to avoid the rainy season in late autumn, which would further hinder fighting and make movements of artillery basically impossible. And by all accounts, the soldiers were extremely happy. For one reason, being able to do something other than the incessant drilling that they had been doing at Boulogne. And secondly, fighting on dry land rather than making the extremely dangerous channel crossing on a flimsy boats in the hopes of getting mowed down by British defenses was, well, certainly much more appealing to them. Napoleon, too, seemed to delight in the upbeat spirits of his men, marveling at their marching speed, their singing of national hymns, and the sheer size of their numbers. By some estimates, the troop movements stretch an astonishing 200 miles with men coming from Boulogne, the Rhine provinces, and Holland. Confident in their ability, Napoleon was also on the hook for a quick and swift victory. In addition to the obvious existential threat posed by the Third Coalition, Rumors were swirling in Paris that Napoleon had seized all of the gold and silver reserves of the Bank of France to pay for the upcoming campaign. 
Thousands of citizens rushed to the banks in order to withdraw what gold and silver they could, but the bank was slow to pay them and then stopped paying altogether. Now, Napoleon had to send police in to quell the crowds, who he was miffed by for their lack of faith in the French military. But in any event, Napoleon needed a swift victory to cover the costs and quell a population that was now having nightmares about returning to the days of the paper Rossignol. And we all remember how well that went, don't we? Now, while all of this was unfolding, Murat conducted cavalry screens across the Black Forest in an attempt to fool the Austrians into believing that the French were advancing on a direct west-to-east axis. He was then joined by General Henri Bertrand in conducting reconnaissance in the areas between Tyrol and the main river, while detailed road surveys were drawn up between the Rhine and the Danube. While the main French contingent would bear down on Germany, Massena would handle northern Italy, Marshal Boone would patrol Boulogne to keep an eye out for the British, and Marshal Saint-Cyr would march 20,000 men to Naples to confront the Neapolitans and the Sicilians. Now, we're not going to talk about the Italian portion of this campaign season in this episode, although we are going to devote some time to it in the upcoming episodes. While it's certainly lesser known than some of the more simultaneous actions that are going on, Trafalgar, the Ulm campaign, and then later Austerlitz, it was pivotal in the French being able to win the War of the Third Coalition, and thus it certainly deserves some airtime. But we're going to leave it here for now, so just remember that Saint-Cyr would be going to Naples to confront the Neapolitans and Sicilians, and then our favorite marshal, Massena, would take on Archduke Charles in northern Italy, picking up from where Napoleon left off after the Battle of Marengo. Now, the initial plan for Germany was for the left wing of the Grand Armée to move from Hanover and Utrecht to capture Württemberg, while the right and center would concentrate along the Middle Rhine near Strasbourg in the Alsace. Murat's screening was supposed to divert Austrian troops away from Mack, while other French forces would invade the German heartland and swing to the southeast by capturing Augsburg, which is just 30 miles from the Bavarian capital of Munich. The idea was that Mack would be completely isolated and their line of communications would be severed. And that, I think, is a perfect segue into giving us a chance to introduce the commander of the Austrian forces the aforementioned Field Marshal Karl Mack von Lieberich. Karl Mack von Lieberich was born on August 25th, 1752 in Nensligen, a small city in modern-day Bavaria, though at the time it was part of the Principality of Ansbach because, well, you know, Holy Roman Empire things. 17 years older than Napoleon, Mack was, of course, a part of the local nobility, and he joined the Austrian cavalry in 1770 in a unit commanded by his uncle. He became a cavalry officer seven years later at the age of 25, and he quickly rose up the ranks from there, fighting in the brief war of the Bavarian succession and then the Turkish war, where he was a personal aide-de-camp to the Holy Roman Empire Joseph II. Distinguishing himself in battle, he was promoted to colonel, but disagreements with his superiors led to him nearly being court-martialed. Now, Mack would continue to serve during the war, receiving a bad head injury, which he never truly recovered from, though Fighting alongside him, a young Archduke Charles would later write that it would be Mack who was responsible for their victorious campaigns. But unfortunately for Mack, Charles would not be making the same remarks after the Ulm campaign. Now, During the French Revolutionary Wars, Mack had a mixed record, though most historians agree that it was a relatively poor one. Despite some initial successes, Mack fell out of favor with the war councils and was blamed for stalling campaigns on the Rhine, with his only supporter being the now Emperor Francis II. 
Keeping that in mind, he was promoted to field marshal in 1797, and he was then sent to Naples, where he was even less successful, and he sought refuge in the French camp, where he happened to meet a young Napoleon Bonaparte, who then decided to make him a key prisoner of war. Escaping two years later, Mack was actually out of a job, and really was only given command of the Austrian army in Germany out of necessity. Because remember, Archduke Charles was in Italy commanding what he thought was the army to be part of the main theater of the war. And so it was Mack who was the man that was set to face off against Napoleon Bonaparte in Germany. And, well, surely nothing could go wrong there, right? On the 22nd of September, 1805, Mack decided to hold the Iller River at home. He believed that the French would not be so brash as to march their men through sovereign Prussian territory to come around their rear, and so he felt safe at home. But this would prove to be a disastrous mistake, as we will see in just a minute. Now, two days later, on September 24th, Napoleon left Saint-Cloud and joined his army on the 25th as Strasbourg and the Alsace. He was going with his men and marching towards the Danube to confront Mack directly, and then cut him off from the Russians. And in a bit of foreshadowing as to what is to come of Napoleon's bulldozing of the German provinces, he sent General Georges Moulton to the Elector of Wittenberg to demand passage for Marshal Ney's 30,000 men. The Elector, seeing no other option, obliged, requesting only that he be made king of the province once they passed through. Napoleon, knowing he'd be ruling the place anyway, laughed, quote, well, that suits me very well. Let him be a king if that's all he wants. And, well, they passed through without issue. Now, while all of this was happening, Marshal Bernadotte and his one corps were marching through the city of Ansbach in Bavaria, but again, it was technically a part of Prussia. Now, this meant that Max believed that the French would not move through a neutral country was proven wrong. But critically, Mack decided to stay at home and defend the city instead of retreating south, which would have given his forces the adequate time to recoup from battle and, at the very least, save thousands of men from complete encirclement. And, adding insult to literal injury, Napoleon was actually completely unaware of the size of Mack's army, if the records of the day are to be believed. Many of his agents greatly exaggerated the size of Mack's forces, and the intelligence of what Mack's movements or his intentions were were to be spotty at best. There was, however, no spottiness in Napoleon's intentions. Now, as we've noted earlier in the series, Napoleon's core system allowed for his entire army to basically turn on a dime in any direction. And after the Grand Armée crossed the Rhine, that's exactly what they did, turning 90 degrees to the south. Described by some as one of the greatest changes of the front in military history, by the eve of October 6th, a giant line of the Grand Armée was facing south from Ulm to Ingolstadt on the Danube. Now, if you don't have a map handy, this delicate placing of a massive amount of troops meant that Napoleon, without losing a single man, had cut Mack's line of retreat. And for this alone, his movements at the end of September to the start of October 1805 stand as some of his greatest military achievements to that point in his career that's, well, about to accrue a few more over the next couple of months. Now, to break it down even further, here is how they sealed them off. On October 5th, Napoleon ordered Marshal Ney to join Marshals Long, Soult, and Murat in crossing the Danube at Donauwörth. Now, while this was not enough to elicit a complete Austrian withdrawal by the core force led by Michael von Kienmeier, also stationed at Ingolstadt, 
It was enough to prompt his troops to use caution in their movements and evade the French. Now, given their size, this further convinced Napoleon that the majority of the Austrian forces were massed at Ulm, and he sent a large portion of his men to concentrate around Dunavirth to seal off Mack's escape. Just one day later, on October 6th, they were in place. Truly remarkable. Now, at this point, Mack became aware of the position he was now suddenly faced with, and understanding the danger of being completely enveloped, he decided to go on the offensive. Now, his decision would lead to the first two major engagements of the Ulm campaign, the battles of Wurtingen and Gunsberg, on October 8th and 9th, respectively. On the 8th, Mack ordered his army to concentrate on Gunsberg, hoping to cut off Napoleon's communications and to draw him further east towards Munich. Napoleon, meanwhile, also believed that Gunsberg held enormous strategic value due to the bridges it held crossing the Danube. And he believed that Mack would not be crazy enough to cross the river and move his troops away from his central base of operations, but that's precisely what Mack did. Now, on the same day, and for reasons which are still not entirely clear to this day, Mack ordered General Franz von Offenberg to take his men, 5,000 infantry and 400 cavalry, east to Wurtingen in preparation for the main Austrian advance out of Ulm. However, because he had so few men in such short notice, Offenberg had little time to prepare a battle strategy. Soon after embarking, the Austrians met Murat's cavalry and then Marshal Nicolas Oudinot's grenadiers, who had the intention of trying to outflank the Austrians from the northeast, where the French positions were at their strongest. Realizing the hopeless situation, Offenberg attempted to retreat back to the Austrian positions in the southwest, but they were not quick enough and were quickly swallowed up. The Austrians lost nearly their entire force, with around 2,000 being taken prisoner. The Battle of Wurtingen, if you want to call it that, was a swift and easy French victory. The battle also proved the indispensability of Murat, who will feature prominently here in this episode. Now, with his first escape plan destroyed, Mack decided his best course of action would be to conduct his campaign on the left bank of the Danube, that is, the one facing north. His problem was, critically, that his men were on the right bank and they needed to cross to head north. Where did they decide to take that crossing? Well, you guessed it, Gunsberg. Now, the Austrians had a contingent on the north bank designed to look out for the French as well as to protect the bridge crossings at all costs. But unbeknownst to Mack, was that Marshal Ney and his 6th Corps received new orders to seize a crossing point at Gunsberg, sending General Division Jean-Pierre Femin Malia's 3rd Division to capture those strategic bridges. He split his division into three columns, each tasked with taking a separate bridge or bridges. One of the columns bumped into an Austrian picket line commanded by Constantine Gillian Karl Despres, and he ordered his men to destroy the bridges immediately. That is, Despres did. In doing so, however, Desplay was now trapped between the French and the river, and he quickly surrendered his men in two cannons. Confident, Malheur then continued on and attacked the town itself, but the French soon came under heavy artillery fire from the south bank outside of the city and from an island position in the Danube, which was also crossed by two bridges. The French attempted to fire back, but were quickly overwhelmed and had to find cover and retired in favor for a new strategy. But Mack was also confident, and defiant, that he could make the crossing and ordered his men to rebuild the bridge. Led by his lieutenant field marshal Ignaz Agiulai, Mack ordered his 7,000 men to cross the makeshift bridge that night and establish a bridgehead on the north bank. 
But as soon as the bridge had been repaired, Ney's 59th Regiment appeared, hours behind schedule, as fate would turn out, and they hurriedly smashed through the Austrian columns. The French then formed squares when Austrian cavalry attempted to relieve the infantry and quickly fended them off. Malheur then concentrated his forces to defend the bridges, and by nightfall, it was the French, not the Austrians, who controlled both sides of the bridge. In two days, the French had two swift victories and sent Mack back to Ulm. The Austrians suffered around 2,000 casualties and lost six guns, though the true loss was that Mack could no longer attempt his crossing at Gunsberg, and he had to move all of his men back to Ulm and settle in for a likely siege. Mack, never one to accept responsibility, blamed the failures on him being so caught up in his writing that evening that he did not hear the cannon fire. He also excused his actions for Uli, as he stated that the bridge had indeed been rebuilt, and thus that the mission was accomplished, which is interesting logic, to say the least. Ney, whose leadership was steadfast and further validated his status as one of France's finest commanders, wrote to Napoleon that he believed that Mack would be at Ulm and that they should send the army there to crush them. But after interviewing the now-captured display, Ney recanted and believed that Mack would actually be concentrating at Bibohak. Now with this in mind, Napoleon sent Ney to Ulm to help capture the city in case the Austrians planned to double back, not knowing that he was sending a single division into the entire Austrian army. But that, folks, is called foreshadowing. Now the Austrians, well, they slowly retreated back to Ulm, completely demoralized at where the previous two days had left them. Arriving in the early morning hours on October 10th, Mack debated on his next move, and Napoleon, well, he was now preoccupied with the oncoming Russian threat, not really sure how far off they were, but still needing to prepare for the worst should they arrive. The last thing Napoleon wanted was to have his guard down and a bunch of overconfident soldiers celebrating over two victories that, well, in the grand scheme of the war, did not mean much if they could not completely take out the Austrian army. And so Napoleon decided at this point to give Murat complete command of the right side of the army, which meant that Marshals Lannes and Ney's entire corps fell under the command of Murat. The rest of the army covered the left, which was to guard against any potential Russian threats. The following day, on October 11th, Murat ordered Ney and the majority of his 6th Corps to move to the south bank of the Danube, making a renewed push towards Ulm. Now, Ney offered some objection to the order, believing that only a small force on the north bank of the Danube was insufficient to repulse an Austrian attack, but Murat brushed him off. Ney eventually complied with the order, albeit reluctantly, and left only a division force on the north bank commanded by Pierre Dupont. Ney would march his two divisions along the right side of the Danube, while Dupont would lead his single division directly to Ulm. This movement would lead to the next engagement of the Ulm campaign, the Battle of Hochelig-Unionen. The 32nd Infantry Regiment of Dupont's single division marched from Hochelig towards Ulm, but they quickly ran into four Austrian regiments holding the small town of Buffingen on the way. Now what Ney and Dupont did not realize was that the entire Austrian army was still at Ulm, and thus their assault alone would be fruitless. Dupont's infantry carried out several hit-and-run attacks on the Austrians, but they were quickly repulsed. The Austrians then decided to employ their superior numbers from Ulm to envelop Dupont's force and then leave Ney completely isolated, knocking him out as well. But Dupont, critically, saw what the Austrians were attempting to do, and instead of holding their ground, he ordered an attack on the small borough of Union near Ulm. Now, to say this decision was bold would be a massive understatement. Dupont held somewhere between four to 6,000 troops, and he was facing off against a force as large as 35,000. 
But he figured that if he retreated, the Austrians would pursue them and break the French lines, creating an even bigger issue for the entire army. Thus, acting like a hiker trying to scare off a bear, he pretended to make his army seem larger than what it really was. The woods to the north of Dupont's position would help in this strategy, as it shielded the French from potential cavalry attacks, while also forcing the Austrians to respect the idea of a larger force emerging as a reinforcement. Now, Dupont sent further hit-and-run attacks at the Austrians in Union Inn, and because of the woods, Mack was unable to use his cavalry effectively, exactly as Dupont had intended. Mack also erroneously believed that the French forces he was fighting were only an advance guard, and that a larger army was soon to approach, and so he did not use the massive advantage he held in manpower effectively. Now, Dupont's goal was not to take the city, but rather to hold off any potential advance for Mack while Ney moved towards Ulm. And his division fought valiantly until nightfall. When they withdrew, his troops exhausted. The French lost over a thousand men, but the Austrians, despite having a force five to seven times larger than the French, lost a thousand men and had six thousand taken prisoner. Mack's colossal blunder, and there really is no other way to put it, allowed Dupont to escape and for the French advance to continue. For this reason alone, the Battle of Hochelig-Unionen was a strategic French victory. Now, the overall significance of Hochelig Union is still debated today. Murat was blamed for putting Dupont in a near suicidal position, while Dupont was heralded for his quick thinking and bravery in an impossible situation. Now, understandably, Ney and Murat were both furious at each other, blaming the other for the battle, with Napoleon intervening and ultimately siding with Ney. But what was certain was that Napoleon had now been given enough information to assert that the majority of the Austrians were indeed concentrated at Ulm. The day after the battle, October 12th, Napoleon wrote to Josephine that they had basically wrapped up the campaign and that the Austrians were mere days away from capitulation. Quote, The enemy is beaten. He has lost his head, and everything proclaims the happiest of my campaigns, the shortest, the most brilliant ever waged. The same day, the Bernadotte captured Munich and secured the crucial city as the final days of the Ulm campaign came to a climax. With everything now in place, Napoleon began his pursuit to punish Mack and march the Austrians straight back to Vienna. But wanting to keep Mack in place for his exposed position, the French sent, quote, deserters, basically planted spies, to the Austrian camp with the intent of them telling their captors that the French army was mutinying and ready to return to Paris where there was to be a coup to overthrow Napoleon. Now, in terms of believing these rumors after your army has been thoroughly outclassed in a matter of days, this stands as one of Mac's bigger blunders, and as we've seen, there is a laundry list to choose from. Because Mac, as he was one to do, took the bait hook, line, and sinker, and he stayed put at all, completely unaware that in just over a week, he and his men wouldn't be marching on a victory tour through the streets of Paris, but to a furious war council in a Vienna palace. Napoleon then sent the corps of Marshal Soult and Marmont towards the Illa River, and he kept Marshals Davout, Bernadotte, and their Bavarian allies around Munich to guard the area, knowing the Russian threat was ever-present. Napoleon wanted to capture the bridges on the rivers, preferring not to fight a large-scale engagement on the river banks, and thus the bridge-taking would prompt a fight on an open field. Napoleon then focused his forces to the north of Ulm, believing that fighting there would feature more prominently than the city itself. He sent Ney's forces to the high grounds of Elkanen, and it would be there where the penultimate battle of the Ulm campaign took place on October 14th. Now, Mack, after the Battle of Hochschlag-Union, began to reassess his position. 
Having already fallen victim to a faux conspiracy theory, he reorganized his army into a similar corps system that Napoleon deployed. But he kept contradicting himself on his orders to his generals, and this led to a state of confusion amongst the war leadership. He sent one of his generals south to Tyrol, one to Holdolm, and another to move north to Hedenheim. Now, the reasons for these orders are still not known today, but some have hypothesized that Mack had already seen the writing on the wall and wanted to give his men a better chance at escape by spreading them out over a larger area should they be overrun. But again, he was also under the belief that the French were mutinying, so there really is no clear logic in any of this. Now again, it should be noted that Mack was wounded multiple times in his life, including at the battles of Hajlak Unionen, so we cannot rule out any sort of head trauma coming into play here. Regardless, the last order he sent out was to send Field Marshal Johann von Riesch on the waterlogged roads in the direction of, well, you guessed it, Elkanen. On October 13th, Napoleon heard from Ney that only Dupont's division had occupied the north side of the Danube, and Napoleon then ordered he and Murat to shift their forces and take the heights of Elkanen, the last major obstacle until their complete envelopment of Ulm. Marshal Soult, meanwhile, was ordered to head south towards the town of Memmingen to cut off the Austrian advance towards Tyrol. The next day, on October 14th, two simultaneous battles took place which all but sealed the fate of the Austrians, Memmingen and the aforementioned Elkanen. We'll deal with Memmingen first, since it was less strategically important, though it was a swift French victory nonetheless, and further proved Soult's worth to the emperor in the early days of the empire. And so, in place of Memmingham on the 14th with some 26,000 men and 50 cannons, Soult sent a letter to the town's governor, Carl Spangen, that he would bombard the city until its capitulation. Now, Spangen was in no position to bargain, and with a force of only 4,500 men, he had little choice but to take the threat seriously. In a matter of hours, he surrendered the city and his men to Soult, and Soult lost only 16 of his men in the brief skirmish. With its capitulation, Soult had completely taken the right bank of the Danube, and he was able to stop any reuniting of the Austrian armies in Bavaria and Tyrol. With a simultaneous victory at Elkanen, it meant that Ulm was completely surrounded and the Austrian escape was impossible. Which brings us, of course, to the Battle of Elkanen. Now, backing up a day, on October 13th, a muddy Riesch and his men arrived at Elkanen and found General Major Johann von Lauden fighting for control over one of the bridges crossing the Danube. Now, Riesch made the critical decision to call off the fight and instead order Loudon's troops to just defend the north bank of the river and leave the bridge in the hands of the French. He then ordered his men to pitch camp at Elkanen and await for the larger French forces to arrive, hoping that his men, tired from the arduous march from home, would be rested enough to withstand the fight ahead. It has been hypothesized that Riesch failed to act because he had lost faith in Mack's ability as a commanding officer and thusly wanted to do what he could to protect his men. Nevertheless, he and his 8,000-man corps occupied the coveted high grounds around Elkanen, awaiting a highly motivated Sixth Corps under Marshal Ney. With Dupont stationed on the north side of the Danube, Ney planned to have his men attack Huish's position across a bridge directly south of their location. Once the bridge was secured, as well as repaired, he would order Murat's cavalry to cross to assist in the assault. At 8 a.m. on October 14th, Ney sent his elite companies across the bridge, which they took with relative ease. He had engineers repair the bridge, and while Riche sent two battalions to reinforce the position, they, too, were quickly repulsed. With the bridge repaired and the position secured, growing numbers of French reinforcements began to arrive, and they began their main assault on the heights. Led personally by Ney, 
the French quickly overran the Austrian position and captured the heights save for a small factory within the town. The Austrians attempted to push back with their cavalry with some success, but additional French reinforcements helped to push Riche's men all the way back to the surrounding grosser forest. Threatened on all sides, Riche began ordering his men to pull back, attempting one final cavalry charge, but to no avail. Napoleon, who oversaw the fighting and then advanced as it became apparent the Austrians were being driven back, gave his coat to a wounded soldier, telling the young man, quote, Try to bring this back to me, and in exchange, I will give you the decoration and the pension that you have so well deserved. It was moments like these, in addition to the fact that he came within a mere pistol shot of being killed, that made Napoleon adorned by his men. The French took Elkanen with relative ease and were on the doorsteps of Ulm. They lost around 740 men and lost upwards of 54 officers, but they also managed to kill 2,000 Austrians and take another 4,000 prisoner. Ruiz and what was left of his survivors retreated back to Ulm, where they joined Mack as sitting ducks. In less than a week, their fate would be sealed. Ney, for his bravery and leadership in commanding the main assault, was proclaimed as the Duke of Elkanen after the battle. And of course, the honor was indeed fitting. Now the final battle of the campaign, the Battle of Ulm, is somewhat of a misnomer as it took place in the surrounding towns, but nonetheless, it too was a decisive French victory. After Elkanen, the French celebrated that night in the camps, Napoleon telling stories and chanting alongside his soldiers, all of them aware that victory was only moments away. With some smaller engagements throughout the 14th, the French camped only a few hundred yards outside of Ulm, the Austrians likely being able to hear their celebrations and seeing their campfires, unable to do anything about it. Mack was unable to escape via the north bank, the Imperial Guard was camped right outside the south bank, and Sewell, having just annihilated the Austrians in Memmingham, was now moving back north to prevent any fleeing Austrians from escaping south. And Mack was also facing insubordination from his officer corps. Archduke Ferdinand, who was technically in charge of the army as a royal officer, left the Ulm camp with a cavalry regiment, severely hampering any slim chance Mack had of resisting a French attack on the city. However, Murat, the cavalry master, harassed this regiment and they were unable to join Field Marshal Franz von Wernick at Hedenheim for additional support. Murat then continued his pursuit of Wernick for the next five days and eventually forced Wernick's surrender at Treuschlingen on October 19th. Murat took their entire train of 500 vehicles and then swept towards Neustadt, capturing an additional 12,000 Austrians. So remember, kids, if you're ever commanding a cavalry regiment, the only man you do not want to mess with is French Marshal Joachim Murat. He will dash your hopes quickly. On October 16th, the French began their siege of Ulm with artillery fire. The Austrian morale was extremely low at this point, and Mack began to put feelers out to the French for surrender. The next day, Napoleon sent his emissary, Philippe Paul, Comte de Seguer, to Ulm to sign a convention with Mack on instruments of surrender. Mack initially stated that if he were not relieved within 21 days, he would surrender his army. Napoleon, however, knowing that his supplies were dwindling and not wanting to lose momentum, gave Mack an ultimatum of only six days. When the news of Murat's thrashing of Wernick finally reached Mack, he came to his senses and surrendered three days later on October 20, 1805. The Battle of Ulm was the final piece on what had been a resounding French victory in a campaign that would be studied for generations. Some 20,000 Austrians escaped, 10,000 were killed or wounded, and the rest were taken prisoner. Only about 500 French were killed, and another 1,000 wounded. 
In just over two weeks, the French Grande Armée had defeated some 60,000 Austrians and 30 generals. When Max surrendered his sword at 3 p.m. on October 20th, a French officer who received the Austrian contingent didn't recognize Mac and asked him who he was. Mac famously replied, quote, You see before you the unfortunate Mac. The quote has gone down in history as one of the most famous of capitulations, and it has stuck ever since. Napoleon, in turn, famously told Josephine, quote, I have carried out all of my plans. I have destroyed the Austrian army simply by marching. The scores of captured Austrians were then marched back to France, where they would work on French fields, milling wheat to feed the Grand Armée as it marched its way throughout Europe. Napoleon, who claimed to have not removed his boots in eight days, told one of the Austrians, quote, Your master wanted to remind me that I am a soldier. I hope he will own that the Imperial Purple has not caused me to forget my first trade. He claimed to the captured Austrian generals that they were mere puppets to the British, nothing more than lapdogs and mignons, at the time a sexual insult insinuating that the Austrians were, well, whores to the British. Nevertheless, Napoleon gloated profusely over his massive victory, as one would imagine he would have. He quoted his men in one final bulletin after the campaign's conclusion by stating, quote, The emperor has invented a new method of making war. He makes use only of our legs and our bayonets. No quote could better describe the smashing success that was the Ohm campaign. Now, the Ohm campaign has long been studied as a great example of strategic victory, though it must be acknowledged that Napoleon's army was far larger in number and of greater quality. Despite the large number of battles over the course of two weeks, none were, well, major in comparison to what we will see over the coming months and years, and they were all decisive for the French. The Austrians fell into a similar trap to what we saw at Marengo, though here the French suffered no mistakes in their traps. The campaign worked almost exactly as Napoleon had planned, and now there was nothing stopping the French from taking Vienna, which they would do in less than a month, but we will get to that a little bit later. Because next episode, we're going to rewind and go back in time just a little bit. Because for as brilliant a campaign as Napoleon had just waged at home, Almost simultaneously, he was going to suffer one of the most catastrophic defeats of his imperial reign at sea off the coast of Cadiz in southwest Spain. That's right, it's time to revisit our old friend Admiral Horatio Nelson as he commands his final triumphant battle, one which would go on to live in annals as one of the finest in naval history. Join us next time as we talk about the legendary Battle of Trafalgar.